let me just remind you of where we've been and walk backwards just a minute. So you've seen this opening, the introduction, the thanksgiving, the doxology. We actually started chapter 2 talking about being made alive in Christ. These are all kind of to bring things to mind. Moving forward in chapter 2, we remember the commandment to the Gentile Christians to remember where they were before. He says to them, you're strangers no more. And we focused on Christ being our peace. Last week, we actually took on all of chapter 3 together. And he presents in chapter 3, he's about to present the prayer, the prayer that Ryan read just a few minutes ago, that goes from basically verses 14 to 21. We close with that. And Paul was about to pray that prayer when he kind of suspends it in verse 1 and says, wait, let me tell you about the plan for the Gentiles. It's almost like it comes to mind as he's speaking. And there's a lot to unpack in that. I just want to pull out two themes that we pulled out from last week. There were more. One of them was togetherness. There was a focus on being together. In fact, he repeats it three times. Together with Israel. Together in one body. Together as sharers in the promise. And all of that happens in Christ. So there's a focus on unity. Now, of course, he's talking about unity between Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians. But really, he's making it clear that in Christ, we're all unified. There is really no more distinction. There shouldn't be. Because we're together. We're going to be focusing on that theme of unity tonight. And also grace. In our application last week, the application was to remember that grace is not just the means by which we're saved. Ministry is a grace we've been given. And we focused at the end of last week about how many of us actually think of ministry as a grace, as opposed to an obligation or something we have to fulfill, something we have to take on. Maybe it's even a benefit to us. Maybe it's something that helps us achieve significance. He was saying, it's grace. And I really asked you to focus last week on how do we think of ministry? Is it really a grace? And if it is a grace, which he says it is, God's gift to us is the chance that we get to work with him. Partners in ministry. How do we steward the grace that we've been given? How do you steward ministry? How do you steward grace? Do you share it with others at all? And we really kind of examined. So that's kind of where we left off. And then, of course, there was the prayer that we just spoke about that concluded chapter 3. So here we are. We're in chapter 4. If you're going to follow the technical word, now we're entering the kind of the perinesis of Paul's letter, the ethical teaching. He's going to start to instruct those Gentile Christians in Asia Minor, but he doesn't give up on the theology so quickly. Let me start reading from verse 1. Paul says, As a prisoner for the Lord, better translation could be as a prisoner in the Lord, even his status as a prisoner is in Christ Jesus. As a prisoner for the Lord then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit Through the bond of peace, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all, through all, and in all. And already the temptation I have when I read these, as I've said throughout this whole series, is to just kind of glaze over, because these words sometimes seem so lofty that we miss the meaning. So let's zero in. I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. This is more than just saying, live worthy. 
There's a reason for it. In fact, everything that Paul is going to talk about when it comes to how we're supposed to live flows out of what he's been talking about, about how we believe and how we see God and how we praise Him and what He's done. I don't think that you could separate what we believe from what we do. And I know some of us do that. And I want to speak to that because I think that if we're not rooted in Christ, that it's kind of silly to think about the things that we might do in this life. We would probably quickly identify somebody if I said, do you think you could save yourself? Do you think that your acts could be enough to justify yourself before God? Most of us say, no, that's, that's, that's an elementary understanding of what works are supposed to be about. Paul has already made it clear, and we'll see in a moment, that it flows out of who God is and what we believe about God. But that's very important for us, because a lot of times when we become ambivalent about what we believe about God, we just press the gas on doing what God wants. And Paul would never allow that. What he's focusing on is, now that I've spent three long chapters, no chapter divisions, I know, but the three chapters that we've spent looking in this letter about this great praise, he's going to say, coming out of that now are the things that you should be doing. But only because of those things. I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. That's kind of vague. A better translation is, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling which you have been called. He actually uses kind of like a double emphasis on the word calling. And this is the same emphasis that we saw at the very beginning of the letter that disturbed most of us when he was talking about calling in the form of election, like God having called those, the elect whom he's going to save. So Paul, again, flavors the very beginning of this, reminding that God is the one doing the work. He's the one that's called us. Now live life worthy of that which you've been called. If God is the one who's doing all the work and he's done this amazing thing by calling us and saving us and doing all that is necessary, then shouldn't we, just out of maybe obedience, amazement, wonder, whatever it is, have this reaction that says, I want to live worthy of the fact that God has done this. And I had almost, well, I had no part of it, or almost no part of it, depending on the view you take. We talked about that the first week. Be completely humble, gentle, be patient, bearing with one another in love. Bearing with one another in love is probably better said as putting up with one another. Not just like bearing with Bearing, that sounds too Christian. He's really saying put up with one another, even the people that are difficult for you to put up with. We do that in love. But look at the first words before we get to the end. Humble, gentle, patient. Those aren't strong words that really resonate in our society. I think most of us kind of say, yes, we know enough to say humility is good. We don't know about gentleness. That sounds kind of weird. That sounds like meekness. That doesn't sound very high on the list of things we'd want to exhibit. But we know enough to at least be, say that we're humble or that we like humility, even though humility is very hard to achieve because it requires a knowledge of where we really are, where we stand. And it's really a knowledge of ourselves. In fact, it's a low knowledge of ourselves. Most of us, we know where our weaknesses are, but we kind of put past those and say, yeah, admitting that I have weaknesses, that's humility. Actually, admitting where you stand compared to where God is is probably a better sign of humility. Knowing all of those things is probably the humility he's talking about. It could be literally translated like a low mind, like a low understanding. All right, Humility, gentleness, patience. That's not exhibited 
among church members or anybody in our society, patience, like waiting for God's time, seeing things happen in their time, not on the schedule that we want things to happen. I'm not going to go into a whole trite conversation about how we need everything now in our society. I think we all know that. But I just point out that those things are not easy to do, and yet those are the first ones that he begins with. Patience, along with humility and gentleness, and putting up with one another in love. The putting up with one another is an active type of love that we have to engage. It's not going to be easy to do. So that's his first prescription now as he turns. Like in light of all these things, this is how you should live. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. I am going to be talking about unity, and in a second I'm going to ask you to tell me what you think about unity in the church. But I want you to first notice the starting point of unity. Unity comes from the Spirit. Unity is already there from the beginning. He says make every effort to keep, to maintain, to hold on to the unity of the Spirit. The Spirit unifies us. So he's saying the admonition is hang on to that and make every effort to do so. But God is the one who's done the first effort. That's consistent with everything we've read so far. God acts first. The unity is there in the Spirit. But he's saying now it's our part to make the effort to hang on to that through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit. In fact, as we look at all these words, I can highlight them to make it even more clear how much he's emphasizing this point. Look at all the words that he uses, the word one. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Complete. There's one. He's making a very strong case about unity. We can hear echoes of this, and we've talked about it previously. In chapter 3, he's making the case about unity between Gentiles and the Jewish believers. But now he's making this case for all. And I believe that flows throughout the whole letter, by the way. So look back at Matthew 12.25. It's also found in Mark 3.25 and Luke 11.17. Jesus knew their thoughts and said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself will be ruined. And every city or household divided against itself will not stand. That wisdom has been used since spoken by Jesus throughout the ages. People have used that in military defeat analogies. We've even used it in our own country's kind of history. I think this truth is definitely there, but Jesus spoke it as a reminder. And we could use that right now to consider what the outcome is when we have disunity. He's saying, divided, we fall. John 17, 22 and 23. Jesus prays, I have given them the glory that you gave me, speaking to the Father, that they may be as one as we are one. I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them, even as you have loved me. Last week we made the same point out of this passage. That the way that people know that Christ is who he says he is, is by the unity of the church. And, of course, there is the verse from last week that we focused on in Ephesians three ten and 11. 
Paul reveals that God's intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms according to the eternal purposes that he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. And we said most likely what that meant was God was using the church to show all of the dark spiritual forces or maybe all of the spiritual forces that this is the way that I work all things out, that my church is unified, that my church can be unified across all of the diversity that it contains. That shows God's wisdom in the heavenly realms to the other spiritual authorities. So the question I want to just kind of process with you tonight and just kind of make it a little more casual is, what do you think about the present status of our denominations? I mean, how do we understand how that current state that our churches are in affect us, affect others around us, just affect our witness as a church? Is it even something that matters anymore? Is it way too late when they say that there's almost 40,000 denominations in Christianity? Is that even the measure that we should somehow pull them all back together? Is that really what unity means? What does it mean to be unified and is there any hope at this point? Or you could just say what frustrates you about the different levels of denominations and people that there are. You guys have any comments? Jill? I feel like at some point it's kind of futile to try to unite all of these different denominations under a belief set. I think that may be a contributing force to a lot of the splintering that has gone on. Um, But I do think that it's inexcusable to have such a low tolerance for people who believe differently. What's interesting about your comment, by the way, is it points out a priority in our churches. The priority is, if these verses that I just read are correct, that the purpose of unity is that it demonstrates God's power, his wisdom. It demonstrates that Christ is who he says he is. If you attribute those are the outcomes of unity, it means that in the church, we're more concerned about doctrinal purity than about unity. We're more concerned about doctrinal purity and making sure that everybody gets it right than we are concerned about Christ being who he says he is and us being the witness of that or the kinds of things that come out of this here. God demonstrating his wisdom. Whatever all those things are, we we certainly prioritize that. So I take that out of your comment. And of course, it is going to be hard to get those people to come back together because the reason they broke up in the first place just flies in the face of this, if that is the reason the way you presented it. Anyone else? I think there are parts where it's hard to make sense of because I don't think... I don't think we should have just one Catholic church. I mean, I don't have a problem with the Reformation and, and with the diversity that comes with that. I think that's actually good in many ways. I'm trying to figure out how so many denominations, what they can be united around. I think there have to be some, maybe some central beliefs that are still important. It's hard to be united in Christ if, let's say, you know, you don't really believe in the death and resurrection of Christ. I would find that hard to, to be united in mind and heart and things. But I also, I think I agree with Jill in the sense that I don't think you can have all these lists. The list needs to be very small. I don't think you can have a list of these beliefs that you need to be united around. I want to say maybe we can be united around God's mission in the world. Like maybe that's where people with these slightly different positions and statements of faiths and all these things can actually uh, work together and serve along with each other, pray with one another, do these things that transcend uh, the minute differences. Um, 
with the allowance of, yeah, there may be some core beliefs that, that do cause some, hey, I, I, we really can't be, you know, I mean, we, this, this doesn't seem to be united in Christ, so I think there's a little balance there. Okay, can I push back and ask you how, when you made the statement earlier in your comment about you don't believe in one Catholic church, and I think you mean Catholic with a little c, like you mean like one united church, right? How does that square with like what I have on the screen here with all these one words, like one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord? How about one faith, which is really not just talking about one belief, but like the, the object of it, like almost, you, I, won't, I won't say one religion, but, but you know, there's, there's this unity that is, is present. I mean, he makes it over and over and over. Um, how does that square? Yeah, but I feel if you push that, then, then you are saying that your hope is that we would all have the exact same views. Like, I mean, and when I say, I mean, yeah, like that we would have to go down this list point and, and we would all have to agree, and that's how you have one faith. I don't think that's it. You know, because, I mean, I mean, think of if you take the Catholic Church and you say, okay, so everyone has to see, you know, uh, all the church dogma that they say everyone has to join in. I mean, a lot of those things are very divisive. Uh, birth control. I mean, I, I can list off 40 different things here. Why is that the first one you, you care about? about <laughs> <laughs> but, but, but I, mean, I think that we should take this a little further. I mean, I agree with you that if you picked a church and you said, here's the Catholic church and all your dogmas and all your doctrines and all your beliefs and all this stuff, so could we all join that church? We're talking about probably an impossibility. We're talking about after having broken up it's impossible to return if that one church is not going to move off of any of its points. But that's not really the question I'm asking. The question I'm asking is, what if there was a church, though, that only had like five points or whatever it was that, that everybody should agree on to be called a Christian? And we picked a creed or whatever it was, and we even whittled it down to those. Are you still against having a universal church where everybody could belong but agree on those five things, and then the other things they could have freedom in? That would be fine, because, and I mean, to make it more practical, I, I look at Catholics and say they're brothers and sisters in Christ, right? We can still, even though there are many, many of these things where I'm like, I just don't see that, and I won't ever agree on that. Um, but that's how at least I'm attempting to live out unity, is say, yeah, I, I can't cast them off into, oh, those aren't real Christians and stuff like that, because lots of people do that. Okay, Jeremy? I think there's a couple of issues that I see. One is, before this, and in other places, there's this emphasis on humility and lovingness and peace. And, you know, if you just look at the Protestant Reformation, Reformation, whatever you want to call it, what you have are people who can't be in peace with one another, who can't get over themselves. I mean, it doesn't matter what side you're on, the Roman Catholic side, there's people who aren't going to listen and are not going to hear, right? There's not a generosity of spirit. On the Protestant side, there's the same problem there. I mean, in, in some ways, they were, they were just as bad. I mean, they were just as ignorant and stubborn, and there was no generosity of spirit. They were just going to do what they were going to do. And so it should come as, I mean, we can go to the Orthodox, Greek, the Eastern Orthodox split. I mean, we can go to all these different places and see people who didn't listen to each other, weren't open to each other, you know, weren't going to these councils in a spirit of humility. It was, you know, this is, we're going to do this. And, and so I see a difference between, like, a spirit and a, an activity of humility, generosity, peace, and love, and then belief. There's a, uh, th there's difference there. And depending on how you go into it, that's going to shape the conversation. That, that's going to frame what you talk about. So if it's, 
well, we've got to agree on these five things, it's already doomed to It's not going to happen. If it's, we're going to enter this conversation with the spirit of hope and love, joy, we're going to struggle, but we're going to try and do this, that's a different conversation. And I don't see that that's really something that the church is really mature enough to do. I was talking about this uh, the other day with a friend, and we were talking about the ordination of women. And, you know, and we were talking about the unity of the church, and we were thinking, yeah, it would be a great idea. It would be wonderful if we could have one unified church, if we could just kind of rejoin and be one unified church. But the problem is you've got one side that wants everything on their terms, right? They want, we want on this terms with this set of beliefs. And that, that's already the wrong place to start the conversation. And I think the same thing is true in all of these, in, in all of the kind of Protestant denominations. They want the conversation on their terms, or they, they want to set the rules, which again is not a display of humility or openness, or you know, let's let's establish peace first, and then let's talk. You know, and I, I can't see that happening, and I wish it, I wish it would, but that's the kind of unity that that I see Paul emphasizing here, which we just don't. I don't, I don't know how we overcome that. Where's Paul's unity come from? What, what, what is one thing that you can't escape from Ephesians that he would say all things come from? Being in Christ. Being in Christ. That's exactly right. Everything is in Christ. The reason that unity is so important is because nothing can happen for us who are called outside of Christ. He's made that point. Our salvation is in Christ. Our identity is in Christ. Our hope is in Christ. The promise for the Gentile Christians who joined was because of Christ, in Christ. Everything that he's emphasized is being in Christ. So the unity is being in Christ. It's not believing a set of doctrinal ideas to be unified in Christ. However, even Paul has limits, and we have to be clear about that. Like, you couldn't, though, say, well, we just want to be humble and gentle and loving and joyful and deny the resurrection. Paul took churches to task who had trouble with even not just the resurrection, but he wanted to insist that they understand that it was, for example, a bodily resurrection. And he goes to great lengths to make the case with the Corinthian church. So there are some limits that Paul demonstrates over and over in his teaching even though he's making this point that this is what it should be. Our problem is we're always fighting about what they are. It isn't so much that one side or the other, I think, is just saying it must be this way. I think there's a lot of fear in a lot of these groups that if you erode too much, you've gone too far. There's always that fear, but I think that we overplay that. As I said, our priority seems to be to get the doctrine right over and above the witness that we are called to or even... Throw that aside. Forget the witness for a moment. Let's say we just want to be in Christ. We throw that away. Because being in Christ means being unified with all the others. And we don't exhibit that unity at all. In fact, we don't even strive for it anymore. And you have to look at it now from the outside perspective. If you're somebody considering Christ, and you come across this passage or any other, or say you don't even open the Bible, you're just thinking to yourself, you know... If this is true, would there really be almost 40,000 denominations that kind of disagree about how it should be read? I mean, that by itself is a stumbling block to people. Because you can read it. You can read people who have questions about Christianity and struggle with it, or people who want to kind of trounce it or denounce it. 
It's always the same kind of argument when you get to this point. Like, how can anybody say they have the truth when all these different denominations can't agree? Yes. I think a lot of times that you're seven in, the issue many times isn't actually with like the pastors or the leaders. It's with the, or it's with the people the next level down, the important people, the people contributing. They want it done their way. They're the money people. They get in the way of things. They cause problems. They don't like it. They dump the pastor. They don't like that the pastor or this church is working with with another denomination. They dump the pastor. They leave and go to another church and they just hop around. And then you end up with this group either running off pastors, running off leaders, or running off churches, and then ultimately splitting off because they want it really their way. And even though the people they respect in many cases are wanting to be unified, wanting to work together, wanting to be together in Christ, they're unwilling as the people in the church. Okay. Look, some of this can be explained historically. You can look back after the Reformation and say there was a group of Lutherans because they followed Luther. They were in Germany, right? You could say that later on there were people like that were Calvinists, you know, because they grew up around the teachings of John Calvin. You could say there was those Scottish people that eventually became the Presbyterians. You could say there were the people that followed like John Wesley and Charles Wesley and kind of became the Methodists, you know. You could start to trace back and say, yes, we had a group of Quakers, you know, then we might have, then some of them became Congregationalists. Maybe some of those turned into friends, but at some point within, within not very long after the Reformation, they say that by the year 1900, we probably had over a thousand denominations already in just the, about the 300 year swing there that was going on. And you could see that if we had, let's say anywhere from 2,000 to 3,000 at the start of the 20th century, we're getting close to 40,000. We've accelerated the division. Probably because the last century in this one is one that has been marked by a lot of entrepreneurship in, in ministry, I would say. People just starting their own thing. So you could look at historical reasons but there's also very personal pride reasons that I think we should think about. I can't tell you the number of people who want to do their own thing. There's a feeling like I'm somehow anointed to do something different and nobody else understands or nobody else has got it right. I need to do it my way. And that right there begins to break off and make segments. I see it all the time. That's why there's probably a thousand water ministries and a thousand give a bike to somebody in Africa ministries, right? Because everybody feels like they're going to do it somehow differently. And that same pride and individualism that we have also seeps into our churches. Every church looks and goes, you know what we really need to do? And then they go off and they form their own thing. You know, there's, a, there's room for that. I'm going to talk about that in a moment. But we first have to examine, does it come from fear or a priority of putting our doctrine above all of the things commanded by Scripture? And also, does it come from pride? a need for significance, a need for self-importance, even if it's subtle, a subtle narcissism that we don't always think about, even among church people, not just among leaders. If you go to a really cool church, I see it happen all the time. You start to identify with that church. Everything is about that church. Some denominations I know that are non-denominational denominations won't work with other denominations. They'll only work with the missionaries in their denomination. Or if you just happen to be a really, really big church, you'll only work with ministry started by your church. There's something I think that's amiss from that that totally goes against what we're talking about here. All right, so we've looked at some historical reasons. There's some pride issues. There's some individualism issues. But it creates a weakness for the church as well. I mean, Christianity today is miles and miles wide and like barely an inch deep because we're always adding it to fringes and keep going. We don't deepen existing ministry. Because our individualism kind of 
leads us to stay away from joining somebody else's ministry. My vocation in ministry or my participation can't be to join somebody else's ministry. That'd be crazy. That would remove me as the messianic savior that I am. How could I join someone else's ministry? God has a unique calling for me. He spoke to me. It's about me. Well, it's about you, but, but I'm the one leading it. We have to identify those things because everybody else on the outside already has. Okay, that's the state that we're in. Could we change it? Is it possible? I mean, you know, Paul is talking at a time when the church is closer to being one, and let's be clear about what one means. Even at the time that Paul is writing this, he knows that there's a group of Christians in Jerusalem that believe like a little bit differently than he does even about the role of Gentiles in the church. He's had to go to Jerusalem and to have this council with them. And they had to deliberate. And some people could say they kind of agreed to just kind of go their separate ways and have him minister to the Gentiles and they would stay focused on what was really going on. And maybe if you interviewed them, you would find out that in Jerusalem they kind of believe like this is really the headquarters. This is really what we're supposed to be doing. Paul's doing a great thing, but he's kind of out there and he needs to be out there doing his great thing. But this is really what's going on. I think that you could find that very clearly. So it's not like he's naive thinking that we all have to be at one big church and he's certainly not talking about a building because he's talking about the body being in Christ. We are the church. So there's clearly going to be congregations of the church and different churches around because he's writing to them. And he never says to the Corinthians, hey, you guys got to disband and join with all the other churches I'm writing to. He never says that because he recognizes that the local expression of the church has a place. So let me throw the question back out. With what we have right now, what should we be doing if we're supposed to be followers of this ethical teaching because God has saved us and now turns us out to do these works? What are we supposed to be doing? Do we just go, well, that's just the way it is. I don't see any way we could really get around that. If somebody appointed us the World Council of Churches, this people in this room, what would our recommendation be? Yeah? This may sound pretty basic, but I think... Love Christ, love others, is all I would say. So if you could be on board with that, you should be counted as part of the, the whole body, right? Yeah. Okay. Anyone else? Can we do anything realistically? Yeah. I'll just say kind of personally, I think like these kinds of scriptures and passages, just kind of my own inner reflection, I think has what has led me kind of out of my faith tradition growing up, which would be, you know, even and more towards some something more structured. Like it's not coincidental that I that I've always kind of felt that it's just strange, you know, where I grew up and the, and the kind of just the forty thousand different ways in which everyone seems to be doing anything. And there's there are there are other theologians who have done that and they've written about, you know, how they, they were this and then they kind of and I'm not advocating that we all become Roman Catholic, but but something that, that appeals to me in, in that movement to, I don't know what you would call it, not orthodoxy, some, something in that, you know, that movement away from the, the, um, the division and more towards unity is stuff like this. You know, if there's a way to, to as a one person, Make a movement towards unity. You know, how, what does that look like? And that just means you, you, know, you take small steps, and, and, and that could look differently for different people. But I would say that this is actually something that 
it has at least gone on for me, and for a number of years, where I just there's something there about like reconnecting to a, a, an old, long tradition that that has this um, sense of connectedness to something that's gone two thousand years before. Um, not that I've done that. <laughs> I'm not Roman Catholic. But I mean, I, I see some movement there, and it comes out of these types of things for me personally. Yeah, I really have no idea how you would do this worldwide, or I mean. It's a really interesting question to even think about <clears throat> being on the World Council of Churches. Like, what would you do? I have no clue. But what I would say is people do, on an individual basis at least, they have to just begin acknowledging that there are other expressions of Christianity than the one they're in. You know, I mean, for me, again, sort of like Jeremy, it just I'm very thankful I went to APU in the sense that there are different professors with different bends theologically and just kind of opening my eyes and ears you know, to having various professors and those, hmm, this is really interesting. I've never been around Christians who talk about this or who believe this or who live this way. It really opened my eyes to saying, you know, there really are wonderful ways of living out the faith that are different than what I do, and yet I appreciate that. And I, I honestly have, yeah, I've just, I've become more inclusive in that sense. Of, I've seen that, and I feel that I relate better to other Christians who don't necessarily hold on to some certain tenets that I have um, and I would highly recommend that all people go begin learning about the other expressions of Christianity and, and having friends that aren't from your own denomination but it's learning to appreciate it like the movement isn't just knowing that they're there like I learn to appreciate them and say wow those are neat and I'm not going to close my ears or cast you off as weirdo or something like that like no I've appreciated the differences okay Jason uh, I was actually going to pretty much say the exact same thing, but um, to add to that, a more intentional and active way of seeking that out. Um, like for me, it was, I was seeking out, or I was invited to a, um, what I thought was a choir practice, and it turned out to be an Orthodox church, and I ended up going there for six months, just on Saturday nights, um, but it was very other, entirely <laughs> other. Um, it was so different the whole entire the culture of it all was very different the, the expression was very different than I was used to um, all of the things that they did the things that they said um, were very different and but they were very open to me they didn't change anything that they did because of me um, they didn't stop the service and say oh th this is what we're actually saying I know you probably can't understand the word we're saying is kind of in this sing, singing, talking kind of thing, but what we're going to, they just kind of did it, and then occasionally I would have questions about it, and they would, they would be open to those questions, and open to discussing, um, most of them anyway, um, and they would invite me to weddings, and uh, funeral, and amazing other kinds of services, and picnics, and different kinds of things, it was this this way of me, um, even though I was probably not going to go through the year of catechism to become an Orthodox believer, they were very welcoming to me expressing, trying to express my faith with their faith um, in this very different way. And so, just like Morgan, I would highly encourage every believer to to go, especially go if they if they're in the Protestant place to go look at a richer or 
uh, yeah, I, I think it is richer even though you don't want to admit it. It's richer and it's older. It has things that um, that have a depth to them that ours doesn't. And so encouraging people to seek out that, not necessarily to become that, but to see that, to experience that, um, and to share with other people in that. Um, because that that is an act of unity in a way. If you're not there just to figure out how they're different and then to judge that, but just to kind of experience it even though you're not necessarily going to accept it all for yourself. Okay. Joseph? I would agree. I came to kind of that same viewpoint that we need to be accepting and welcoming and um, even just knowledgeable of these other traditions, but in a much different way. Like going to college in the South, growing up, having all the different options. You get down there, there's really there's Catholic, there's Pentecostal, and there's Southern Baptist. Even if they say there's something else, that's really what you've got. And so you end up like it's so limited. Once you, like in my case, like growing up here, I'm like, oh, yeah, do all this, whatever. But I didn't really appreciate that there were these different traditions until I got down there and there's really only three. Even if they said they were Methodist or said they were Presbyterian or said they were whatever, it was all, no, they're really just Southern Baptist, Pentecostal, or Catholic. I have no idea what they would do if they really had other options, like the people who don't know have never been elsewhere. Okay, any other comments? You know, in a way, I'm, I, I plan that we would leave this here because I don't want to leave the topic so easily. I actually want to give you time to think about this particular question. You know, other than celebrating other faith traditions and valuing them, which sounds more like a diversity course than it does a unity course, how are you, as a follower of Christ, as someone in Christ, a unified member of the body, how are you supposed to live out this teaching that Paul is setting up. Remember, Paul is done being descriptive. He spent the first three chapters being descriptive of what God has done, and his focus is now shifting to what we do. Yes, God's action is still very much part of what's going on. But I'm not going to let us off the hook that easily if we're going to go through a book like Ephesians, because it has things to say about what we're supposed to do as being in Christ. And so I have to ask you, what are you going to do? Just like last week I asked about, how do you steward grace? How do you see ministry? Is it grace in your life? Are you even involved in ministry? Do you even steward grace at all? And I think that was a somber question that we have to ask. Tonight's question is really, what part do you play? What part will you play? And I know there's a big part of you that right now is thinking about the mechanics. What part can I play? How can I unify a denomination? Maybe that's not really the point. Maybe that isn't the point is to unify all denominations into one. Maybe all the denominations could stay right where they are. But we could work at bridging peace and bringing people together to remind them that we already are unified in Christ. And we are going to be unified even further. You'll see as we move forward in chapter 4 that Paul kind of puts two stakes about unity. The first one we've already seen where he said maintain the unity of the Spirit. Like the Spirit has started us in unity. We're unified by the Spirit. Hang on to that. Work towards that. But at the end he's going to say it's going to continue to escalate. There's going to be even more unity coming. And he's talking about the future when we're made even more in Christ as glory approaches for all of us. So there is this already and not yet tension just in these verses when he's talking about how we focus on unity. 
but I kind of throw that out there for you to think about. Maybe this will help you too. I was looking at a site that a lot of people had cited that gives this description of how we are supposed to be unified. And this site said this, As believers, there are certain basic doctrines that we must believe. But beyond that, there is a latitude on how we can serve and worship. It is this latitude that is the only good reason for denominations. Listen to that again. So, there are certain basic doctrines that we must believe. But beyond that, there's latitude about how we can serve and worship. This latitude of how we serve and how we worship, and maybe even the non-fundamental beliefs, that is the only good reason for denominations. According to these people, that's it. The best reason to have a denomination and the only reason that you should separate or anything is just maybe different styles of worship, different ways of serving. Maybe it could be because you from a different culture, a different background, a different language. Those are all good reasons. Geography, we all can't go to the same place. Those are all good reasons to break up into those kinds of things, but that's it. This is diversity and not disunity. This first allows us to be individuals in Christ the latter divides and destroys. Disunity, they're talking about, divides and destroys. You know, I have a lot of respect for the people who write for this site. They're usually very well trained. They say a lot of good things. And no wonder I saw this site cited a lot of places. I don't want to call them out because I'd be like naming names. The reason for that is because this I also found on their site. Now they're talking about what Morgan was talking about, about can evangelicals and Catholics ever have any unity? Same site, same people that just made that great statement that I cited. They say this. As seen with the publication of evangelicals and Catholic together, there is a major emphasis in our day on ecumenical unity. Sounds good. Those who promote such unity state that both are Christian and are both viable, God-honoring systems of faith. But clearly, the substantial differences between the two groups, evangelicals and Catholics, render their statements, ridiculous. I just thought it was so funny that the people who just promoted this great definition would actually use the word ridiculous to comment upon evangelicals and Catholics together, which is an ecumenical group trying to find some common ground. The substantial differences between the groups render their documents ridiculous. Biblical Christianity and Roman Catholicism. Just stop right there for a moment, because one of them has claimed the Bible. And the other one, clearly, those other people. So, biblical Christianity and Roman Catholicism are two different religions that practice and believe different things about how one is saved. The authority of the Bible, the priesthood of believers, the nature of man, the work of Christ on the cross, etc., etc. The list of irreconcilable differences between what the Bible says and what the Roman Catholic Church says makes any joint mission between the two absolutely impossible. Those who deny this are not being true to what they say they believe, no matter which side they are on. Any Catholic who is serious about his faith will deny what a serious evangelical Christian believes and vice versa. Fantastic. The very site that was going to lead us into unity has given us the greatest reason why we can't be unified. Because of this strange belief that we have a corner on the truth. If we read anything in Ephesians so far, it's that unity comes in being in Christ. It's not in having the doctrine straight. Although Paul is very good about that, he spends a lot of time in theological reflection on it. Paul is somebody who will call somebody out for being 
incorrect about something. Paul is somebody who will hold on to fundamentals, but Paul reminds us that that is not the place where we find our grace, our salvation, our unity. It comes in being in Christ. And to make a sweeping statement that Roman Catholics cannot be in Christ because their doctrines disagree with ours seems to miss the whole point of biblical Christianity. I think I'll leave it there, and next week I want to pick it up. I want you to spend some time thinking about it this week. What is your role in this? How do you live out the ethical teaching that Paul is giving? Otherwise, why are we reading the book? We just ignore it say, he spoke to other people, not me. I understand what you're saying. I'm not going to do anything about it. I don't think that's the point of going through this book and getting into the paranesis. Let's pray. God, if it's truly humility and gentleness that we're supposed to be seeking, then I pray that you would shower it upon us and help us to reach that as well. Because we too need to be humble. It's easy for us to point out the problems that go on around us. It's also easy to be overwhelmed by them and not realize the power that is in you. Not realize that unity, Lord, may not focus on church buildings and structures and denominational lines. They may just focus on those who love you. You could find that unity. Lord, this week, will you bring these things to mind? Would you help us to cherish this time and treasure it and not waste it? Your spirit has brought this question to our group. May we spend time this week thinking specifically about how we, members of your body, can bring this unity and help others to recognize the unity that the spirit already brings. Pray this in your name. Amen.